Show Me The Money, the podcast that looks at the business side of movies and TV with me, Jess Robinson, and the wonderful Stephen Follows. Hello. I, I like that the enthusiasm is, is ramping up with each one, and I'm just wondering whether you're creating yourself an inflation you just won't be able to meet, or you'll just crash at some point and be like, hello, hello, show me the money, yeah, whatever. Yeah, no, I'm building up to a big fireworks display. But I, I don't know, a vocal one, obviously. I was about so. to say, you know it's audio only, right? Otherwise you're spending a lot of money on makeup each week and costume. Or a really shit fire, uh, indoor fireworks display. <laughs> How are you this week? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm up and back and running and everything. So, um, good. Yeah, everything's going well, I think. Marvellous. Um, so, on to our first topic... The View cinema chain says it didn't cancel screenings of the new horror film Dashcam due to its content. I think Jesscam would be a really good film, <laughs> by the way. You um, wouldn't be in it, though, because it would be your perspective. So everyone in the world could be in it apart from you. Does that sound oh, less appealing God, now? God, you're so right. <laughs> oh, fuck that. Oh, no, I've been explicit already. I'm so sorry, listeners. I'm a really nice girl, I promise. Uh, okay, so anyway, tell us about what, what, what The View Cinema says it didn't cancel screenings of the new horror film Dashcam. Yeah, it sounds like a non-news story, doesn't it? And, yes, um, so what... what I'd, I'd like you to get your cynical hat on because we it's one of these sure. things where we don't know <laughs> yep no no problem just grab yep, it here, uh, um, it's on. Yep, yep. there we are um because we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes but we i can give you the facts and then you can like a judge judy type thing decide sure. what's really going on are you going to do the voice <laughs> um no you're being judge judy here because i'll give you the facts and then you can okay. decide what's happened um so do you know about the film <laughs> dash cam have you heard about it no i haven't tell me it does sound like the kind of film that you might like. Um, it is a horror film. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, so it's all shot from uh, the perspective of like a, an iPhone or a dash cam of a camera. So it's like, you know, first person it's, and they're pretending they're live streaming it. So there's, there's quotes coming up on screen. And mm -hmm. it's about like a, a road trip type thing that happens. So I, I got the, I went to the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification to find out because they do little summaries of all of the naughtiness that's in it. Mm -hmm. and I thought this was the best way of um, seeing whether it, so this is a question to you whether you'd see this film. So I'm, I'm going to tell you the, the one line sentence plot and then I'll tell you what bad language is in it. I'll sure. censor it. And Can I'll I say tell you what, so far it sounds like the Blair Witch Project mixed with The Hangover. <laughs> a little like that, a little less hangover, I think. Okay. Um, so Dashcam is a US horror film in which two friends during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic live stream what happened, what turns out to be a horrifying road trip. As far as bad language, I'm going to mm -hmm. censor all the actual language. There is use of very strong language, C word, strong language, <gasps> F word, MF word, yeah. Farts. <laughs> yes, um, which accompany uh, by other uh, terms such as, there's a B and an S word. Um, oh, um, but... <laughs> Sand. Okay, yep, sure. yep, yep. And now let's look at the violence. Um, scenes of strong bloody violence involving zombies, tentacle creatures attacking humans, biting them, tearing off their skin. In one sequence, a zombie slits its own throat with a knife, resulting in projectile blood spurts. There are other bloody shootings, stabbings and bone breaks. The I love it when you say other bloody shoot. You just sound like an irritated Englishman. There are other bloody shootings, stabbings <laughs> and bone breaks. Uh, the film contains pervasive strong threat and horror, including jump scares. There is crude humour throughout, including a strong verbal reference to sex. Oh, a scene no. involves human excrement with a woman soiled herself in the backseat of a car. Does this sound like your kind of film? I think it sounds like a night out. <laughs> yeah. it like been if watching. I'm honest, that's just a general Saturday night in Brighton for me. Is this from your autobiography? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that must be pretty be harsh. In my head. Someone, someone adapts your autobiography and it turns out to be a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> it's a warning to others. But, well, if um, it is, if we do Jess Cam, then it probably is a horror film from everybody else's <laughs> perspective. And I'm just like skipping along in my own world. <laughs> well, th I mean, this is from Blowhouse, who did Paranormal Activity and Get Out. And they've done lots of horror films that have like, they, they, they're very good at doing low budget, high concept films that do very mm. well. So the whole idea that this is a live streamed type you know, film and that it's quite extreme is just in the nature of the film, right? That's what mm -hmm. audiences who want to see those kind of films want to see. Um, and it came out on video on demand and in cinemas on the same day. It's what they call day and date. That's the industry term for like when it comes out on multiple platforms on the same day, mm -hmm. which is something that makes me slightly suspicious. 
Because what the actual sort of controversy here, you can't see because I'm putting this in sort of the speech marks. The controversy here is that the director, Rob Savage, he tweeted an email, apparently from View Cinemas, apparently saying, uh, due to the contents of this movie, which may offend some of our audience, uh, that our decision not to, uh, with not to screen, we're not screening, uh, screening dash cam anymore. And so let me find the quote he said. He said, apparently View Cinemas have cancelled their screenings of dash cam because the movie is too offensive. If that doesn't make you want to watch this film, what will? And uh, it's a good PR stunt. Mm-hmm. And then Views replied, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to guess the tone here because it was written, but I think it's pretty clear. Our decision not to screen dash cam was purely informed by the commercial con- conditions of not being viable. So basically, View cancelled ah, some screenings, so and they, they did- say. So they, it didn't. Oh, I see. So it didn't cancel cancel screenings due to the content. It do, it did it because it's already being streamed. So mm-hmm. who's going to come and see it? This is your. This is where you get to adjudicate with your cynical hat on. Because from View's point of view, they said we cancelled some screenings because nobody wanted to see it. The director said, "Oh, it was too too extreme, too extreme." Doesn't it make you want to watch this film? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's all fine. It's all grist for the middle because, you know, like you said, the, the example of Blair Witch, part of the reason that was such a successful film was that it was an early example of using the internet and, mm. and they had websites up saying, is it true? Is it not? Have mm. these people disappeared? And found footage is a big thing. And so that's the type of horror, found footage is the term. And mm. so I can, it's all, I mean, movies are about like an experience. And if that adds to it, it's only serving the audience who are interested in seeing this. This isn't con- tricking anyone to go to see it. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, who knows? I mean, there were, there was an example when, um, Kevin Smith made his film Dogma 20 years ago, yeah, which was involved lots of Catholic church things. I think it, it was, if you're highly religious or if you're Catholic, I think it was quite offensive. Mm. Um, and so, but he picketed his own movie. Uh, so there was a small protest. There was supposed to be hundreds of people. In there was about 10 people from a local church who picketed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he went along and there's a really funny local news clip where they intimate that he's the director. They're like, this protester looked a lot like the director and star of the movie. And then they cut to clips of the movie where it's clearly him. But he denied it. And they interview him and they're like, why are you protesting this movie? And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't think this movie should exist. Ah. And, uh, <laughs> very funny. <laughs> but, um, yeah, whatever you can do to say, like, you know, this film is too scary. Like, The Exorcist was too scary. and yeah. So it's, it's a long tradition of films being quote-unquote banned and then that's sort of amping up the audience. Um, so I don't know what happened here, but uh, yes, banned for being too extreme is not a bad thing for a horror film. No, I think it was a, a it was that that is somebody sort of um, the the director's just styling it out, and that's totally okay, right? Styling you, it out. That's all grist for the mill, right? I mean, I, I, I mean, that's my, my my theory is I don't really mind, especially for a horror film like this. It doesn't matter. Like, no, gonna... uh, but I don't think I would like to watch it actually. Uh, I think what would make me want to watch it is if it was more actually reality TV and this was really happening and um, you had some like really um, rubbish Z-list celebrities being the main parts. I would like uh, Jim Davidson, uh, Katie Hopkins. I there think... might be more strong language and some more discriminatory terms, I imagine. Yeah, then it would be really offensive. <laughs> I, I like the idea that everyone's saying this film is so offensive and you're like, mm, not really enough for me. No, no. What, what would make it really offensive is if Pretty Patel was in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Our second uh, story is La La Land's Oscar-winning composer Justin Hurwitz is taking the talent agency WME to court. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> Do they represent him? Tell me all about it. Well, I mean, this is the real question. So WME, William Morris Endeavour, are one of the major four, well, they were, there are four major agencies in the US, although one is ICM and... CAA are currently going through a possible merger. So mm-hmm. it may be even fewer of them. But th- this speaks to a larger... So there is a specific case going on here, but it speaks to a larger thing around whether your agent represents you. So I'm going to put you on the spot here because okay. I'm sure your agent's listening to all the work you do. She will. How, how well does your agent represent you? How well? Yes. Um, Good job? Yeah, well, I've got two agents. I've got one for my voice over stuff and I've got one for my um, sort of acting-y envision type stuff and live mm. stuff um i think they're both really good actually 
And and without, I mean, I don't need to give any figures or anything, but basically you give a small percentage. The industry yeah. terms in, in Hollywood is about 10% is the average. So that you Is give, it? Come on. Yeah. Well, Hollywood movies and bigger numbers I think I'm 12.5. Um, well, you're but, getting But there are some there. voice agents that take 20%. Oh, wow. I know. Well, but it'll be different for all different countries and different areas because obviously yeah. the easier the work is, the less you want to pay them. But also the bigger the check, the less you can pay them because it will still equal a lot of money, right? Yes, yes. It doesn't, in theory, it doesn't take much more work to do a deal of twice the size because it's still negotiating with people. It's still writing, you know, signing contracts and stuff like yes. that. So um, so anyway, so the idea of being that they're supposed to represent you and they're supposed to get paid when you get paid because that's yes. the incentive, right? That seems fair. Yes, the money the money goes through my agent. They take their cut and then t- give the rest to me. Yeah, so, so if they do a bad job and you don't get hired, then they don't get paid either. You don't exactly. pay them a fee or whatever. Right, so that's the, that sounds like a fair sort of harmonious relationship. What's been happening in, in Hollywood over the, the last few decades is they've been agents have been looking for new ways to make money. And so that's created uh, conflicts of interest. And right. so there are other ways that they can do things. So we'll talk about this particular case, but then also I want to talk about writers and packaging fees because it's a tangential thing that sort of speaks to the same overall thing. So... In this case, as you said, the, the composer of La La Land, uh, mm-hmm. Justin Hurwitz, he he wrote the music and uh, it was very successful. And La La Land, then they created La La Land in concert, which is this touring thing where they got a live orchestra playing mm-hmm. um, music over La La Land. And uh, I mean, I saw uh, a few weeks ago, 2001, A Space Odyssey with a live orchestra and a choir. And it's a, it's a one of the ways that you can have uh, screenings that you can charge much more money for because it's a much bigger event. You know, um, you can go and see Jurassic Park at the Royal Albert Hall with a live orchestra and stuff like that. And so um, La La Land in concert was doing very well and it was touring. And they, uh, so we, we only have his um, filings to the court and then um, WME have denied a lot of this. So we don't know what's true yet, but we can definitely say what he alleges which is that um, they said to him, okay, so they're his, they're his agent. And they said, all right, well, why don't we do this tour thing? We'll put ourselves, WME will be called the producer of this concert, but just because it helps us protect your interests. Right. And, you know, you'll get some of the money if there's money. And and he said, okay, that sounds all right. Please, can I conduct, can I have the right to conduct any of these, be paid to be the conductor of any of these because it's my movie and, and you know, and he spent um, months and months redoing the score to allow it to be done live because you can imagine the one that ends up on screen can be created in post-production and layered and it's something that you yes, can't actually cut play live. down and yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. So he spent some time preparing it as well as he wrote it originally, he spent some time preparing it and he said, right, when I'll get a percentage of the profits plus please can I be paid at normal market rates to be the conductor at any of the ones I want to. Yeah. And they said, yeah, okay, but it's not going to do very well. So it's not going to make us very much money. So we're not going to, we, we should take a bigger fee or whatever the fee was. And they said, and he said, all right, fine, fine, fine. Then it starts to take off. And it starts to do well. And he starts to ask for, to, to conduct some of these. And they said, well, no, unfortunately, there's not enough money. What? Um, there wasn't enough money was the phrase uh, to pay you properly. So we can't always hire you. And so he starts looking into it. And he realizes that, oh, this is his accusation, that they are charging a large fixed fee for every performance as the producers. Meaning that the reason that he wasn't able to be hired was that his agent was taking most of the money before they worked out how much they had left for him. So he was being denied work because his own talent agency was that was supposed to represent him, his agent, was not uh, like was taking all the money up. Oh, no, no, no. I know. That's it, scandalous. It, They're well, scoundrels. It, get, it gets worse. It gets worse. So uh, so what happened was he started asking questions about this and said, how can you not hire me for this? This should be how you're getting paid. And he sort of discovered they were getting much more money. So they then, WME then uh, transferred the license, the right to do this, to a wholly owned subsidiary called Endeavor Content, which they don't actually own anymore. They sold at the beginning of this year, but that's a separate thing. But they, at the time, they had this own subsidiary that they owned, and they transferred the rights to that to sort of hide from him. This is his accusation uh, that that, um, that 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 you know there'll be any money or anything like that. And then his own agent, Amos Newman, left WME to become a senior vice president at this Endeavor content thing, and Newman got paid a bonus of $100,000 for, for this whole process. And then when they when he said to him, like, so you're my agent, you have um, 
taken this, put it in this holding company, which you guys own, and you've taken a bonus for how much money you've made. I I guess you're not my agent anymore. And he went, no, no, I'll still be your agent. So, so, I'm I'm gobsmacked that this is this is allowed. Well, yeah, this is the problem. I think this is it. So it speaks to a few things. It speaks to the fact that the agents thought they could do this. So assuming that everything he's claiming is true, we don't know if it's legal yet or not. That's what the court can case. But uh, assuming it, I don't think many of the facts will be disputed. It will just be whether they have the right to do it or not. So it doesn't, it's one thing if it's legal or not, but it's a bigger question about whether it should be okay or not. And there's loads that goes on that's not okay. Oh, gosh. God, I really hope that if he doesn't, I mean, he's got to leave this agent. He's got to leave them, but he's got to get this sorted out. Is, yeah, well, that's why he's suing them. He's saying, look, you're not acting in my self-interest. No, you're... he's absolutely, they're not. Exactly. But, well, but if... Yeah, assuming all this is true. But I mean, it's most of it is not disputed in the sense that they are the producers of it. They did earn money. They did pay him a bonus. They did put it into Endeavor content, which is their wholly owned subsidiary. To, and his claim is they did it to obfuscate and to hide. They just said they did it for organization reasons. But in either case, they still owe him what they owe him. You don't, you know, just because you put it in a different label doesn't remove what you've promised. Um, but the reason I, I wanted to speak about something else on this, the same topic, because it right. speaks to the wider thing that these guys have also been engaged with. So the agents for a long time have been doing something called packaging, which isn't actually what they did in this case, but it's the same meta story, which is normally, or not, yeah, historically. Is it anal sex? Um, no, packaging. Sure. <laughs> um, they, they may have also done that. That's not in this, that's not in the court documents I read on this one. Um, uh, so they uh, they would normally get 10% of their, you know, let's say I'm a writer and I'm hired to write on a TV show and I get paid $100,000, the agent would get 10% of that. Fine. But years ago, the agents sort of realized that if they went to the producers of this show and said, look, we can give you the writer, the director and the star because we represent so many different people. We'll, all of them will come from our agency. Then maybe we can get a kickback. Maybe we can get some money to as producers as people packaging the show and and the studios thought well okay you know what we're going to get all these big names uh so yeah let's do this and then to make it okay with the clients the agent said all right you know what you don't have to pay us the 10 percent." so the uh from the point of view of the clients the mm. the actors and writers and performers and whoever they were like oh why well, don't have to pay my fee anymore that's great and the studios are like wow i just come to an agency and there's only a small number of agencies so it's very easy to find one that's got great people. And then there's a whole kind of combination of, of you know, actors and stars and whatever that come together. Yeah. That's all fine, except that they the agents started making more and more and more money from the packaging. And they'd earn way more money from that than they were. I mean, they could earn 50 to $150 million for a successful show if it ran and ran and ran from the packaging fees which meant that they stopped representing their clients. This is the accusation because mm. the writer might say, I want to be paid more. Please go and argue to me to get paid more. And the studio would say, well, no, we're not going to do that. And whose side the agent, you know, the agent's going to side with the studio, right? Yeah, right. Um, and also because the, if the writers are on or the agent, the clients are on any kind of profit share, if their agents are taking money out earlier on in the chain of flow of money, then them taking money out is reducing the profits that the clients are going to get. So they have no incentive. The, the agents have no incentive to ask for higher fees. And there's a conflict of interest. Yeah. And also they're taking money out, reducing the amount of profit that their own clients are going to make. Gosh, this is crazy. I know. And and uh, so the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, uh, a couple of years ago really started to sort of kick off. The um, David Simon, who, who wrote The Wire, he was basically saying like, okay, this is outrageous. And he, he, he threatened to fire his agent. And other people joined in this open letter and thousands of writers fired their agents saying, look, you can't do packaging and represent me because you're not representing me. And so um, at that point, the Writers Guild said that 87% of scripted shows, this is in 2016, 17, were packaged mm. by agents. So the vast majority of the shows and movies, big movies, this is how it worked. Wow. Um, so yeah, they got into a big dispute and the WGA took the, the agents to court. My understanding is that the court threw out most of the accusations because I don't think it's because, I mean, it, whether it's moral or not is up to you. I don't think it's particularly moral, but it was legal. Because the agents are good enough to get away with this, right? Mm-hmm, they're not mm-hmm. doing; they're not just randomly doing this. Um, but they did because so many of the uh, writers fired their agents. Thousands and thousands of really big writers as well just fired their agents. 
all of this, all of the agencies kind of eventually got around the table and agreed to get rid of some of their producing arms, like Endeavor content right. was sold at the beginning of the year. And they also agreed to have like, so it, there was a sort of not fudge, but a compromise agreed between them all yeah. where the, there's certain caps and there's a franchise agreement. And bizarrely enough, actually, the practice, the practice of packaging has been, they agreed to phase it out by the 30th of June, 2022. So later this week. Um, wow. But they've already, yeah, coincidentally, this was a few years ago, they agreed to that. But they basically, they're shifting it around. I think what happens a lot in Hollywood is that you get power dynamics where one side gets loads of power usually the studios or the agents, and they run with it and they really, really sort of hammer that as much as they can because that's their job and because that's what they're encouraged to do and why not. And then the other side, usually the writers or performers or someone like that, by virtue of one of the unions, eventually get their act together and say, nope, we're going to strike or we're going to fire you or whatever. And then everyone argues for ages and ages and ages and then there's some sort of new compromise deal and then everyone moves on. So we've just been through that whole journey where packaging grew, grew, grew. And this, although this particular La La Land thing is not about packaging per se, it is about the same idea of who pays your agent. And if it's not you, then who do they work for? Yeah. So, so yeah, your 12.5% to your agent is probably quite a good thing because you're incentivizing them to get you paid more and more often, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, I can't yeah, imagine if it, I don't know about, you know, I'm terrible with contracts and things like that. That's I completely rely blindly on my agents to work all of that out and be my, you know, have my best interests at heart and, you know, do what's right for me. And God, the thought that they might, you know, that there, there are agents out there that are also have, you know, completely... Um, conflicting interests that's really quite scary I do I did nearly well there there is another agency in England that's a bit like that Mm. Mm. well the thing is these aren't I mean these aren't people who are secretly doing this or a few bad apples this is how the whole agency world ran so when the WGA stood up to it it was sort of saying you need to change your entire business model and they and the the agent said well if we get rid of packaging, then we're going to have to go back to charging 10% to everybody. So you're going to lose out. And the writer was like, no, not overall. You know, maybe on this deal or that deal. But like, so this isn't a, a question of good eggs or bad eggs. This is about like whether the whole system should run like this. Mm. And I think your first reaction, which is, no, of course it shouldn't, is what I would agree with. Agree, but yeah. these agents have made, between them all, I mean, I'm sure billions and billions from doing this. Um, and uh, yeah, so, but... I don't know, like it's just the way the industry ran for a while until the union stood up for it, so. Wow, it's a mm. bit scary, isn't it? You're going to start rereading your contract with your agent and find out whether they're allowed to do that. I don't even thing. know where it is, Stephen. <laughs> 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 um, have you seen Pixar's new movie Lightyear yet? Yet. No, I have not seen it yet. I'm, Are I'm you going of, to? I think I will. I, I'm, I'm trying to get my niece and nephew into seeing more movies in the cinema, but I think I have to make sure it's a U, not a PG. And I watched the trailer and I think it'll be a little scary for them. Ah. But um, I'm not sure, but I'm looking forward to it. Have yeah. you seen it? Well, if you do go and see it, you can't see it in Saudi Arabia, the UAE or Kuwait. You can't tell me how to live. No, you can't. They're not going to show it because it includes a same-sex kiss. And <laughs> what's the problem? What century are we living in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell, no, it's... Tell us all. What, oh, who no, kisses who in that? Buzz uh, I kisses... Think it, I think it's a, a, a lesbian space ranger named Alicia and her partner, and they've got a family together. I mean, it's one of these That's things lovely. where... it's so, I know, it's so mild. Like, there, there was a kiss uh, uh, between... There was someone who's shown to have two mothers in, in Doctor Strange 2, and I... I'd read about that before I saw the movie and I watched it and it's like 10 seconds and it's a benign scene of a happy family. And I'm just yeah. like, you, you you have to really search for for offense. But this is cultural because yeah. uh, the countries you listed, most of their laws are based on Sharia law, yeah. which is a lot harsher and a lot less negotiable. And so I don't think it's okay at all, but I can see how they ended up getting there if mm-hmm. that's where your principle is. And so, yeah, it's, it's and it's it speaks to a bigger debate so imagine you're disney and let's forget for a second what your personal values are let's think of you are trying to shepherd a multi multi-billion dollar enterprise it's a global thing and you've got two competing concerns one you want to 
have content that, that travels around the world. And so you will normalize, and not normalize, that's the wrong word. You will change your content, customize your content for many reasons. You know, there are things that are in some countries, you can't show swastikas in Germany and things like that. So there, there are lots of cultural reasons why things have to be different around the world. Yeah. And so on the one hand, you want to change that. I'm sure products taste different in different countries depending on palate. And so regardless of what it is, you want to customize it and sell it to most people. On the other hand, you have to worry about offending people and you have to worry about doing one thing in one place that would cause an, a bigger r- ripple somewhere else. I'm, I'm deliberately ignoring all of the moral obligations I think people have as well. Just, yeah, yeah, just yeah. To, I'm trying to make this as corporate as possible. Uh-huh. The morality we can bring back in in a minute. But um, So you've got this concern. And what Disney have got at the moment is that they have these bits of content where they are trying to... One would argue that their films, along like, like most films, have underrepresented... Uh, people who are in the LGBTQIA plus, you know, brackets. And so they are, because I think it's sort of 8, 10% of America, the last survey falls into one of those, you know, at least one of those categories. And so when you look on screen, there are very, very few representations of like non-heteronormative cis relationships. And so um, they're trying to counter that as well as perhaps also wanting to morally do things that are correct. Um, And so they're adding these bits in, or at the very least, maybe they're not taking them out because I think it's not that they have to say, please put them in. It's probably that the animators and writers want to put them in and they previously have been told to take them out. Um, And so they put these things in and they're very, very mild and insubstantial. These aren't campaigning films, but then they can't distribute them in a lot of these other countries. And so... But if they, but at the same time, if they then take them out and edit them in these other countries, they take out twelve seconds to get a small amount of money for going into Saudi Arabia or the UAE or wherever. Mm. Then people in the UK and the US and, and and other countries will picket it, and it might be twenty, thirty million people in America fall into those bracket. And also, it's not just those people that would be offended. I'm offended by that. I don't fall into any of those categories, and I'm offended by the idea of them cutting this out for worldwide things. And so they've done very subtle things in the past. So the film On- uh, Onward, which was a Pixar film, they had a female police officer mentioning her girlfriend's kid. And uh, the film was banned. Well, when we say banned, sometimes it just wasn't submitted. Sometimes everyone knew it wasn't going to get in. So banned here is a loose language, meaning they said no or they never asked the, the authorities. In Kuwait, Oman, uh, Qatar and the Saudi Arabia. In Russia, it was changed just to be the wife's partner. So it was deliberately vague. And then in Arabic language, it was my sister's daughter. So they kind of, yeah, and then Rise of Star Wars had a uh, same-sex kiss in the background during a celebration scene that was cut out for some releases. Um, Beauty and the Beast, the live-action one, had the most in most mild, you know, blink-and-you-miss-it moment where um, one of the characters was uh, dancing with a man in a dress, but that was cut out. And what's happened until more recently, so the most of those examples, Onward was 2020, Rise of uh, Skywalker was 2019 and Beauty and the Beast was 2017. Most of those cases, they just subtly cut things out and everyone tutted and nothing happened. Mm. But now there's more militancy. There's more organization uh, in the US against this kind of work. And the actual animators, I think some of the stuff in Lightyear was cut out or at least was going to be cut out uh, in, in the production process. And then the animators said, no, we want this in. And so you know, Disney decided to prioritize the US market. And so you could imagine that they are under these pressures, not that I think it makes the decision any, like, I, I'm not giving them any sympathy. I'm just, I'm, I'm aware that they're trying to balance these things. So do they lose loads of definite sales in the US? Or do they lose these markets that are growing? You know, the, um, mm. what they, what the Middle East and North Africa, MENA, which is funny, or MENA. I don't know if it's worse that men did this or whether it's MENA. But um, that's growing quite a lot. And so that's an area where they don't want to, you know, piss off people. And so, right. I, you know, mostly what they're choosing to do now is just not submit it. So uh, these countries sometimes get really sort of uppity about it. They're like, we did not ban this film. What happened was they, they everyone knows that if they'd submitted it to the censors, the censors would have said, cut this out. Right. And Disney would say no, no. And then it would get, so they didn't waste their time. Um, but it's it's going to happen more and more. I mean, it's going to happen more and more because, well, for three reasons. One, we're going to see more representations that actually represent real life, which yeah. means they're going to have more of this in movies going forward. Second of all, there's more uh, structured opposition. This is becoming more zeitgeist from the sort of woke community and people who are campaigning and uh, who just like, no, I'm not going to put up with this. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, there are these areas. This is one of the biggest areas of growth because most of, I mean, you're not going to get much growth in the in, 
the theatrical world in cinemas and whatever in, in the US or most Western countries because it's already hit saturation. Whereas Saudi Arabia banned cinemas until for the 35 years, they were banned until a couple of years ago, until 2018, I think. So there is loads of space for growth in these new markets. So the pressure is bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but so uh, I, I found this out in, in digging around this. So Saudi Arabia, the uh, th- cinemas were banned. Um, and so there were occasional screenings from DVD and conference rooms. But fundamentally, there was no official cinema business until early 2018. <laughs> you can imagine you live there and you're like, wow, I can't see a movie. And then finally, you're allowed to see a movie. And then the first movie that comes from Hollywood that opens in the big AMC cinema they've opened there was the Emoji Movie. Which, I don't know if you know about it, but was one of the worst rated films of the year. It got 6% on Rotten Tomatoes. It got 12 out of 100 on Metacritic. And, and, and I, I thought, you know what? Maybe my memory of it is like unfair because it wasn't made for me. So I dug up some of the critics and I found this brilliant quote um, from the rap. From, this is their, um, the review of the movie. Just a sentence I thought I quite liked. A soul-crushing disaster because it lacks humour, wit, ideas, visual style, compelling performances, a point of view, or any other distinguishing characteristic that would make it anything but a complete waste of your time. (laughs) Very good, Alonso, from the rap. Very good review. But that was the first movie to open in Saudi Arabia professionally in big cinemas. And I just, can you imagine the disappointment of waiting 35 years for cinema and then getting the emoji movie? Like, we're not not being very fair to them, are we? That's really funny. So anyway, oh, so th- these we'll see more representations, which I think personally, now we can bring morality back. We'll see more representations of real life and of real love, which I obviously think is fantastic. And then these big multinational countries and companies are going to keep having to deal with pressures in different countries. And I have no sympathy for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just deal with it. Um, and I don't know what will happen as far as it, I think it probably will just carry on like this. I can't see... Sharia law changing. I can't see Saudi Arabia bending under the pressure. And I think as long as we keep up the pressure on this side of Disney, I think they'll just not have some films in some countries. Yeah. Interesting. Ooh. I'm excited to see what happens with that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, we've got a listener question today Ooh. from Liam Hayes. Um, he sounds very much like Alex Jones from The One Show. It's amazing. Oh, what a coincidence. He says, I know, it's incredible, isn't it? He says... Uh, welcome to the Wen Show. <laughs> How does it work <laughs> when films and TV shows are shot in public places and they shut the roads off? I've always wondered how that works in terms of who they have to pay and how much. Thank you very much for your question, Liam. What, what a coincidence! That you I know it's amazing. That. Isn't that great? Thank you, Liam, for sounding like one of Jess's impressions. Absolutely, no problem. <laughs> it's like he's in the room. Um, yes, great question. Love it. And and I love it for a few reasons, uh, because it is one of those things that you always wonder, like how to, when you see a film set closing down a road and shooting and things like that, um, how do you even go about doing that? Because we couldn't do that just as people. Um, but also because it overlaps with one of those really geeky kind of things that uh, this is a project I did um, 2016, 17, where... Uh, the Freedom of Information Act means you can write to these public bodies and say, can you tell me this information? And, and they're public bodies. They're raising money and spending money on behalf of us. So they should tell you. So I just I sent one to all of the local councils and all of the museums and parks. And I just, you know, it was a mail merge and um, got back loads of data. And so there is actually three articles, which we can link in the show notes um, about this that I wrote back then. So I don't have the latest figures right now, but I do. I did do this once where I went very deep because I was also interested in how this works. So there's a few different things. So if you're filming in, say, central London, there are actually a number of public bodies you're going to need to get on board. Um, And quite often in most places, especially in London, there is uh, a film-friendly industry body, and here it's called Film London, who will help you coordinate. Because there could be 20 different public bodies you have to talk to. That's a lot, but it might be. Well, it might be a couple of councils. And then you might have the river and you might have the aviation and also the police. So the police was one of the people I sent for the information requests to as well. You also need to, you know, and also it's not just filming. So you can, let's say we're filming um, a car chase on one particular road. The production needs to access that road, but they probably need space for makeup vehicles and for toilets and catering. So they need what they call a unit base. And then they'll need to close the roads around them. They'll need parking dispensation, traffic management, 
they'll also need advice as well about the area. And, and so these all, there's a lot going on. And a lot of councils have film officers, depending on how big or small they are. Um, and when it comes to charging for them, interestingly, there's a whole spectrum. So Camden Council make, I think it was, I think it's about, I mean, the time when it was sort of late 2010s, they were making about 600,000 uh, I haven't got the exact numbers here, but it's in the article. Every year from in- this is income, so we don't know how much is profit, but okay. profit into the council. But some go the other way and say, right, we have a film officer that we pay on salary and we don't charge because we want people to film here. Oh. We want people to show off the area. Like if it's a beautiful beach, you want it to be on film because mm. more people are tourists. But also they'll hire local people. They'll buy the catering from local companies. And so and they might see it as part of their duty to help people. So quite often, some of the costs for productions just come down to like car parking, like closing a particular car park, and then they just pay for that. Um, and so sometimes they charge for individual amounts of money. Um, and it, it's not as much as you'd think. So I got a few random costs here. So um, uh, where are we at? Royal Borough of uh, Windsor and Maidenhead, they charge for location advice, which is £30 an hour. Um, then there was Exeter was charging car parking spaces. So nine, nine pounds a day, each car parking space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes they break it down quite a lot. So, um, there was one particular production that Eastbourne council managed. And so they charged about 6,000 uh, pounds for one day's filming. But when you break it down, there was 650 pounds for the location fee, which was three hours of filming and seven hours of prep. There was a supervisor, uh, which had with a four by four car, and that was three hundred and seventy five pounds. There was support and advice, three hundred and fifty again. Uh, Coast Guard support with a landing helicopter, uh, which was three hundred and seventy five pounds. Then there was also stewards to help move people, and so all of that stuff sort of adds up. And you can imagine it's a lot of work. Um, and so, I mean, one of them, um, High Peak Borough Council, charged a thousand pounds for grave digging and filling back in. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, and uh, and Durham charged uh, the BBC three hundred and forty nine pounds for turning the street lighting off and on. Um, so it can be quite like these are little amounts of money, and it adds up to millions a year, which go into the coffers of local councils. They don't go to the the individuals. So in theory, you could make a lot of money. Ealing Council were making quite a bit. Um, so Ealing, I think, over the ten years that I was looking at, they grossed about two two point two two point three million pounds. Um, and as I said, it's museums as well. So the British mm-hmm. Museum has huge numbers of people filming. I, the, the most recent Doctor Strange has a, a fight sequence towards the end that happens. And you and it's weird because I know the British Museum really well. And some of it is shot in the museum. Some of it's shot on a soundstage that's meant to look like a bit of the museum. And sometimes they've changed the location with visual effects. So it ends up looking like a bit like the museum, but the background's different. And so it's a bit weird. But they'll pay a fortune for that. And so the museum's got over a million pounds coming in over the period I was looking at. Um, but then the museum have this problem, which is if you're seeing a beach in a, in a TV show or like a stately home in Downton Abbey or Bridgeton or whatever, yeah. I can understand why that might get more tourists in. But when you show a museum in a film where you're faking some things, you're going to get people coming along and saying, hey, can I see this or that? Because I saw it. So Night in the Museum, one of those films, I can't remember which one it was, maybe the third one, Secrets yeah. of the Tomb, they shot that in the um, in the museum. But there's loads of like historical inaccuracies because it's a Ben Spiller <laughs> kids film. It doesn't matter. So there was, uh, <laughs> the, the, the curators were kind of annoyed because they showed lava at Pompeii, which there was, there was no lava at Pompeii. Um, Wasn't there? Uh, no, because there was pyroclastic ash and, and hot air. And and the thing is, the British Museum had a Pompeii exhibit that was really, really powerful and amazing. But it wasn't like rivers of lava. Mm-hmm. And and I understand it's a kid's film. But at the same time, this, the museum have got this really weird conflict where so they've got I the money. where I get all my knowledge from? <laughs> well, may I politely suggest that you either go to the British Museum or you go to the page on their website, which they have, which is solely dedicated to inaccuracies in the film they earned money from. Oh, can you read so it they, to me? It's been written very politely, though. So on this website, it says things like, sadly, we don't hold any di- dinosaur specimens as complete or as impressive as the Tyrannosaurus, uh, as the Triceratops in the film. Um, but it also includes the lines, things like, unfortunately, we do not have a nine-headed snake demon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the police as well. So like, if, you, if you're filming, if we go back to like, you're filming on the street and there's stuff mm. exploding or you're moving traffic, you, um, you'll need the police there and you may want the police there. And the Met Police, because so much of film production happens in London, about two thirds of 
all films that are shot in the UK happen in London or the Southeast. So the Met have a whole unit for this. They have wow. people that work there. And they have a like a rate card they change every um, uh, every year for how much it costs. So uh, let's do the quiz. These, these are not these are not going to be crazy high figures. I'll, I'll give you the first couple of really high ones, and you can guess how much it costs you for a standard eight-hour day. Okay. If you wanted an assistant commissioner, which is the highest rate there is, a real one just to turn up, not necessarily to be on camera, just to be there, then that's 1700 a day. But going down, 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 down to like a superintendent, 639 what do you think it costs just to have for one day? Pardon? £639. That's for a superintendent. That's the mid-level. Um, so constable, lowest level they have here, mm. on, on a non-public holiday for an eight-hour day, what do you think they're charging them out at? 400 quid. 450 Lovely. Not bad. All right. What about a horse? <laughs> well, do you mean a police horse? I, yeah, or do I you hope mean so. a horse but, to be in the film? No, I mean a police horse. So this wouldn't they, they might choose they might be okay being in the film, but and and it might be that you actually want them in the film, or it might be that for whatever reason you need them to Okay, so a police scene. horse plus are we plussing the police person riding? I, I don't think it does because it's less than the person and I don't think oh. the person is minus. So this is on top of, although obviously the person's on top of the horse, but the cost <laughs> of the horse is on top of the person. Two hundred and fifty pounds. Oh, they're charging a bit less than that. It's 170 at the time really? I was doing this. So it may have gone up a little bit since then. But plus you have to pay for their like their travel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if they take helicopters or Uber and mm-hmm. stabling. Um, right. What do you think, oh, this is my last question. What do you think costs more, a motorcycle or a dog? Oh, um, I would like to say it's a dog, but it's probably a motorcycle, isn't it? Well, the, the proper sort of souped up motorcycles uh, were £94 when I looked at it and the dogs were 36 Sorry, 63, 63. Um, so, yeah, dogs are about 63 pounds plus um, expenses. Wow. I don't know what expenses dogs have. Pedigree charm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can be quite expensive. But <laughs> but so all of this stuff adds up. So you pay to be on the tube, you pay to all this stuff. And it's Film London in London that does it. And they'll they'll do a job smoothing it all over. So um, if you if someone is thinking of filming in the uh, it's somewhere in London, you just go and chat to them and they'll be like, okay, we've done this so many times. Let me tell you how it works. Let me tell you what the rate card is. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's it's one of those things you never think about until you start to think about it. And then you realise there's a whole system and a whole economy and a whole plan behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's for nerds like me, it's fascinating. So if you're interested, uh, just put my name, Stephen Follows, and then location filming and you'll find three or four articles and some data and you can geek out. And, there you go, uh, Liam Haynes, you can geek out. But before we go, oh, yeah. I have a listener question. Do you? I do have a listener question, okay. and 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 I'm going to do an accent on this one. Now I, I know this person, but I, and she definitely, given given that she's my little sister, yeah, she sounds very silly. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, it's not me. This is just you know how she sounds. Okay, so she she's got a listener question. She said, "You touched it." No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> She'll kill me. I was really waiting. I was like, "Oh, I'm going to be out of a no, job." No, I, I I'm really worried. <laughs> Go next year. She very uh, eloquently said, um, "You touched on some similar similarities between the Cannes Film Festival and the Edinburgh Fringe in a previous She's got episode." Quite a low voice, hasn't she? <laughs> very manly, big big hands. No, 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 that's not true. Um, you touched on some similarities between the Cannes Film Festival and the Edinburgh Fringe in a previous episode. Mm. Would love to hear more about the economic the economics of putting on a show at the Fringe. So I would throw this to you. Uh, what are the economics of putting on a show at the Fringe, given that's what you're about to jump into, right? Well, okay. Well, I can... So my first... I can tell you about my first ever Fringe show where I had to do... Oh, no, I won't. I'll tell you... I'll just tell you what it is. I'll answer the question is what I'm going to do. <laughs> Alison. Um, so the first thing you've got to do is you've got to get a venue... Um, and a venue costs uh, well they there's a a guarantee that they will want, but it, it probably costs between eight and nine thousand pounds to get maybe a um, a hundred and fifty seater venue and you're having to you as the performer are having to guarantee this like yes. pay it up front yeah oh my goodness that's a lot of money um uh one moment i'm just i'm just getting up a, a spreadsheet because i know what things cost here we go cost of edinburgh festival where's my spreadsheet sorry everybody shouldn't your agent pay 10% of this no no the en- <laughs> the agent will take 10% of this 
Um, okay, so. The cost of putting on a show at the Edinburgh Festival, you need to pay, um, you'll need PR. So um, you that's usually about £2,000 plus VAT for a month of, wow. of PR. Yeah, so that's, that's one thing. Then um, the um, Edinburgh uh, box office will take a percentage of all of tickets that you... Um, take hold on actually wait a minute hold on everybody this is why I'm not an expert but, uh, uh, on this thing because I don't worry I didn't do an scary. accent I think this is perfectly fine <laughs> if, sure, I, okay. if I had nailed an accent then maybe you should feel bad about spreadsheets but given that we're, we're staying in our lanes I wouldn't worry okay in that case budget fourth. I'm getting up you've heard it here first my budget from Live Nation Live Nation and my promoters, which <clears throat> basically means that um, they are footing the bill. The first the first year that I ever went up to Edinburgh, I didn't have a promoter or a producer, and I had to um, go. I had to go to my sister and say, "Please, please, please, will you lend me ten thousand pounds <gasps> so I can put a show on?" And amazingly, that year I broke even after all of that, but £10,000. And this is not in any way um, uh, unusual. So the venue hire for, let's say I'm going to um, somewhere that seats um, 146 people, 150 people, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, the venue hire is £12,000. Yes, I'm making you gasp, aren't I? Yeah, I mean, because I just I keep thinking about this being on the 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 performer who's presumably yeah. partly going to the festival to get noticed and to get, and also this is guaranteed. You have to pay this, and I know that the outcome you could win Edinburgh Fringe and you know you could win some award and be known. It could launch your whole career, but the vast majority of people just numerically. Yeah they're just going to pay this. And presumably, if they're asking you to pay up front, it's because they, if they thought you were going to be hugely profitable, they'd say, Joe, just come do it for free and we'll take 50% of the tickets or whatever, wouldn't yeah. they? So they're doing this because they know you're going to lose money on average. Like most You will people find are. out by the end of this budget. Sorry, it took me so long to get here and maybe our <laughs> editor will just edit out all of my faffage while I'm searching for it in my emails. But um, yeah, so you'll find out by the end of this, you're lucky if you break even the artist, everybody makes all of the money before the actual person that's put all the blood, sweat and tears into putting on the show. So mm. the venue hire is is twelve yeah, twelve thousand pounds. And of all of the ticket profits and everything, it's a sixty forty split. Forty percent. Forty percent goes to the venue as well. Of well your on top of the money that they've already got. Yes. The then uh, the venue uh, charge for advertising. So that's another 500 quid. Mm. Then the venue, uh, you'll, you'll want to uh, hire a PA and lights from the venue. They, that's not included. <laughs> so hold on, they've just given you a corner. There's no, there's no lighting or any, any amplification exactly. of your sound. Exactly. They've given you basically a, a black box with 146 <laughs> seats in it. So they're, then they're charging costs, you for the individual seats as well. That costs three thousand four hundred and fifty pounds for the month. God. Then you'll want, for example, I, in my show, I need a projector because I'm doing some sort of deep fake stuff and some mm -hmm. dubbing and some really amazing technical stuff which of course all of the listeners will come to Edinburgh to see that costs me two grand mm. then we're talking about actual advertising so then in the advertising budget you've got 580 quid for the digital marketing then you've got for your for the street team Okay, to be out there wearing Live Nation hoodies and giving out flyers and stuff uh, and to store all of the flyers overnight and things like that in somewhere because you need lots and lots of them. That's another 100 quid. Mm -hmm. Then the actual flyers themselves cost 500 quid. Then the outdoor posters cost 1,800. 
800 quid because you've got to be noticed in Edinburgh. And so you get these big sort of, they're called 12 sheets, which are like enormous, rectangular, big, big posters if you really want to be noticed, which I do. So I've I've got one that's going to be right outside the venue where the TV festival's going on so I can get some TV producers to notice me, I hope. And then, yes, the external PR, so that with the VAT, that's 2,300. Then... I can't make this show all by myself. I've got to have a really good director and I've got to have a great composer and I want to have um, my friend Robin, who's a comedy writer, to look over my script and offer up some gags and gag things up. So that is basically going to be another two grand. Then you've got to pay for the staff of Live Nation to come up as well. So you've got to pay a bit of that. So that's... um, another 500 quid and then you've also got to pay for the flyers to actually do the flyering job this is the whole industry you are you are the head of a of a multinational kind of industry here and this is this is just me this is just one show out of maybe I don't know how many shows are going up this year. Three thousand. I mean, there are there are much oh cheaper goodness. ways to do it, and there are much 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 more expensive ways to do it. I would say I'm sort of mid level. If you know, I'm not I'm not doing a huge. I've done hmm. venues before which are three hundred and seventy five um, or four hundred seats, and I've gone down this year to try and save money. But hmm. yeah, the, so the the flyer is are another one thousand three hundred and eighty. Then. PRS, they've just budgeted in 150 for that, but I don't think I'll have to use it because all my... Um, that's music licensing, isn't it? Yeah, that's permission yeah, to use. That's exactly music. right. Then you need... Uh, there's cancellation insurance this year <laughs> because of COVID. So that's another 1,300. Then there's public liability, which is 430. Now, are you more of a liability than most people? Yes, they... absolutely. <laughs> so in the end, right... After all of that, after everybody's taken their cut, to put on my show in Edinburgh for, from the, when do we open? The 3rd till like the 27th of August, it costs £28,513.46. Wow. That's what's in the budget. That's crazy. And let's say you sold out every single seat, which is very unlikely given just the time and the number of seats and things like that. Yeah. Would you make a big profit? Like, is there a high lottery win if you sell out every single one? If I was to sell out every single one, let me just see what I would get. I would get... Um, I would get... Cost balance, artist performance. <laughs> I'm imagining you were like an accountant's if visor, frantically pressing m- uh, buttons on a big calculator, pulling a big handle every now and then. Um, I'll make 1,900, <gasps> no, 1,194 pounds. Before your agent takes 10%, so yep. that's under 1,000 pounds, and then you've got to pay tax. So you're, <laughs> oh my God, Jess, I think you're under minimum wage. I think you could earn more at Starbucks. Yeah. Not that that's a bad, you know, like that's, cr- and that's best case scenario. Yeah. And and without wanting to, to depress you further, are you on the hook? Let's say nobody turns up. Nobody turns up at any point. Oh, I know, but are you on the hook for that full 28? No. Am I? <laughs> oh my God, this no, is where you, I'm listeners, not. you found out live. I'm not. Because is your sister on for half? Yeah, absolutely. No, a Live Nation will probably absorb some of the costs. I have done it before where I've done all of that, all of that work. You do a show every night. You're out doing PR every day as well. You're, you know, there are other costs that I haven't even incorporated into that budget because I pay for the rehearsal rooms myself. If I need extra directing days, I'll pay for that myself. Luckily, the big thing in Edinburgh is accommodation. And this year it costs about three grand to stay up there. So you're definitely going to lose money. Well, I've got my cousin that I can stay with. But that's terrible that that's the way that you make it not lose money is have a cousin. Well, every, I think that apart from my very first year when I borrowed that 10 grand from my sister and did it all myself, which was my God, a learning curve and the most stressful thing in the world. And I managed to break even. I've never, ever, ever made money at Edinburgh 
ever. And most people go away from Edinburgh with enormous bills. And yet they go back every year. Because to get um, producers or directors or casting people to come and see your show in London, where everybody lives, is nigh on impossible. But to get everybody to go up to Edinburgh at the same time and do that is better, apparently. Couldn't you pay everyone to turn up to your London show a hundred quid? <laughs> I could. could Wouldn't I pay that them be for five star reviews as well. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like, and, well, um, okay, that that would be unethical. But to say there will be a fifty pound note strapped to the bottom of every seat, mm. so long as you're, you've got an agent and you put your card in the bucket at the beginning, mm. would might end up with less of a debt. I mean, it'd be less fun. But I, th- I find it so interesting because it's the same as the film industry where I'll talk to someone and he'll say, um, oh, yeah, this film I spent three years making, it broke even, it's great, we've made a, you know, we've made a thousand pounds. And what I realise is that in that calculation, they're not taking into account themselves. Mm. So I'm not even saying you should be on paid a lot, but you have expenses. You're eating, you're travelling, you've got your mortgage or your rent, you've got family, yeah. you know, even like, you know, washing clothes or if you're away from home or whatever, like yeah. there, there are costs. Oh, God, I forgot and about we- eating. We ne- and we more never, importantly, I, drinking is the only yeah. way to get <laughs> Well, that's one, that, suddenly that, that, I have a bit less sympathy. But, you know, all those costs of existing, as well as your own value as a performer, yep. like I said, you know, earning minimum wage or whatever. And pe- we always forget that in the arts where they always think, oh, we broke even, as if, like, that's a good thing. Whereas almost anyone else, like, imagine if you broke even in your normal job, as in they didn't pay you. <sighs> so yeah. it's... It's heartbreaking. But it, I guess the, the good side is that you enjoy it. It's it's a focus to create the work. I don't know if I do know. now. I've read that budget. No, this was the wrong time. Alison, you shouldn't have asked at this point. Although I have also learned you can borrow 10 grand from your sister. That's good to know. Um, that's yeah. very useful. That may have backfired on Alison. Um, well, I'm still paying it back, actually. <laughs> oh, you don't, have to, you don't have to pay it back fully. Great. This is even better. Thanks, Alison. I'll give you my bank details. Yeah, it's um, it's absolutely crazy. My dog's barking now in the background because he's absolutely appalled. Um, so yeah, so buy a I've ticket been, for Jess's show, please. This is going to be please. my seventh <laughs> year going up, and 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 honestly, that sounds horrific. And sometimes I've come away maybe owing two grand or something, which they let me pay off, or they sort of absorb into the next um, production that we do together. That, oh, that that's you know all of that sort of stuff, <laughs> but. Yeah, I'm I'm a lucky one. Honestly, it doesn't sound I'd, like it, but I am. I was about to say this sounds like Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. We haven't got time to argue about that. But um, sure. that is why what? it's really important that everybody comes to see my show. Because could you all buy two or three tickets? Yeah, please, please if you would. It's fucking brilliant. My show. My well, I would hope so. Agrees. Yes, <laughs> it's an expensive show. It's a very um, expensive show. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for the question, Alison. Um, thank you, Alison. I think I might need a lie down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that similar to Cannes then? Nowhere near. I mean, the thing is that if going to Cannes as a, as a punter is expensive in the sense you've got to fly there and, and eat and things like that and stay there, but that won't be very much. Cannes will be, especially from Europe, it's easy jet flight and you can eat baguettes out of a supermarket. But the accommodation might will be higher rates, but it's also only for a week. It lasts yeah. two weeks, but everyone goes for a week. But if you're exhibiting a film, so you're, you've got a film that you're trying to um, like get sold, then yes, it will cost thousands to have a booth in the, in the market and thousands more if you've got representatives there. But you you would be accruing this debt with might be five or ten thousand pounds, let's say, on the low end on the film, but only you don't pay it up front. Mm. That's just coming out of your profits. Mm. So if the film fails, you haven't got your money back from making the film, but at least you don't have to pay this up front. And also, it's not the order of magnitude you're talking about. Although if you do have a film that is in competition or is one of the major films, then you might, I mean, premieres can cost a million dollars there. Um, and I'm sure the French Navy, the French, sorry, the French Air Force charged Top Gun for having the flyby. But at the same time, that in theory, all of that extra governs, all the parties and all of the accommodation, all that sort of stuff should in theory be scaled to how much money they expect to make. So while some people will make money and lose money, fundamentally they're going there for business. Whereas I know you're doing it for the wider business in the sense that this is how you launch yourself. And this is my trade you, fair, yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Although I would say that out of the two, although they're not directly comparable, Edinburgh is a far worse deal because it hits you harsh as a performer. The odds are probably not in your favor. And fundamentally, people are not going with a business mind. Whereas the more you're spending in can, the more you're doing it with a business intent. Whereas what you're doing is not is although it has a business outcome perhaps 
it's more about expression of art and career and self-belief and stuff like that. So I'd say yours is the more impressive of the two. Um, but it also is harsher. I yeah, think. it is mega harsh. It really, really is. Over 3,000 shows are available to, to you know, at, at the festival so far. And there are more being added. And so and you look at those footage of all those posters. I've seen, you know, I've been there and you see all those posters on mm. the high street. And so now think how much some of them were spent to put there. I'm going to look at them a bit more. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah. Thought... Those big 12 sheet ones are about 600 quid just for one. Just, just in the hope that someone will see your face and go, oh, yeah, I think I've seen a flyer for that. Yeah, I think I might go to that. Honestly, I think you should just do the reverse ticket. The bigger the, the in London, fifty quid if you turn up, take you know, <laughs> you know tax free, yeah. take to the bottom of your thing, or, or hand them out on the end, on the, on the exit as you leave. <laughs> I'm going to stand there as the performer, hand out fifty pound notes uh, to anyone who turns up. Yeah, this might be my last Edinburgh. I don't know, but it's quite. I'm sure quite, you say that every year. I do. Yeah, I've heard that before. That doesn't sound. It's. I, I'm sure you believe it, but I've heard every performer say that, and every yeah. because you you wouldn't if you were sensible, you wouldn't have done seven. So <laughs> you've already got the bug. You know, yeah. you're, you're it's too late for you. But uh, maybe I just won't have an idea for a show next year. I'm sure you will. In the same way, I'm sure you don't have the money, but Stephen you find follows it. the musical is what I'm doing. <laughs> oh wow. Well, what a sobering episode that was. Yeah, I hope you cheer up. Sorry about that. We started talking about violent horror film, which you were fine with. And then we talked about censorship, which was uh, uh, depressing. But then when Edinburgh came up, it just took, this took you right This is the most down. horrific thing in the, in the show. <laughs> oh, thank you for listening, everybody. If you like Show Me The Money, then please give it a follow in your podcast app and leave us a review and rating if you've got time. And I'm going to say it one more time. Tickets for my show, Jess Robinson <laughs> Legacy, are on sale now. You can come to previews in London or you can come to the Edinburgh Festival and I will love you forever. If you've got a question that you would like answered on the show, email us at showmethemoneypod at gmail.com. It's a goodbye from me and it's a lovely goodbye from the beautiful Stephen Follows. Goodbye, everyone. Good luck, Jess. Bye, and, uh, bye everyone. Bye. <laughs>